Welcome to Doctors of Tomorrow in 56 podcast, a medical podcast for anyone ranging from middle school students to attending physicians, and for anyone interested in learning more about the medical field from all around the world. Welcome to this very exciting episode today. We have a general surgery resident, so without further ado, we introduce Dr. Gerardo. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm doing well. Doing well. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. Thank you very much. Um, first question, at what age did you know you wanted to pursue medicine? Oh, geez. <laughs> so when I was in high school, I used to play drums. Mm-hmm. I was in jazz band, marching band, like pretty much everything in high school where I could play music. Uh, so I thought that I was going to be a musician up until probably, I don't know, halfway or the end of high school. I realized that I, I need to do something else that I wasn't going to be a, I wasn't going to be a rock star. So (laughs) I kind of looked at everything and realized, you know, I was, I was really exposed to medicine a lot. So my, both my parents are physicians. Mm -hmm. So it was just a really comfortable space for me. Like, you know, going to visit my parents is going to the doctor's office or going to the hospital and hanging out in the doctor's lounge or something. Um, But I never really thought of it seriously as a career until about, you know, halfway to the end of high school when I realized what am I really good at? What am I interested in? And I really was doing well in science. I really liked my science courses. I really liked uh, volunteering. I liked working with people. So that was the natural thing. I was like, well, that's kind of what my parents do. They're, you know, doing science all the time. They're always, you know, talking to patients and things. So I told them, I was like, hey, I think when I go to college, I think I want to major in biology. I think I want to be a pre-med. And they were like, pump the brakes. Are you sure <laughs> about that? They were like, are you sure that, because they thought I would go into, you know, business or something or do music or something else. They didn't think I would do medicine. So they pushed me to really be certain that I want to do medicine. So they made me, you know, volunteer at hospitals more and do more community work and shadowing and stuff like that. Um, so I think I first started to realize it, you know, around 16 years old, maybe, but I don't think I really took it seriously until, uh, I got to college probably. Sounds interesting how you wanted to be a musician and everything. (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. Um, where did you go for undergrad and what was your major? I went to the university of Cincinnati and I, uh, I majored in biology mm-hmm. and the way it was there, I don't know how it is now, but the way it was there, you take so many chemistry classes that you're basically like a few classes away from getting a minor in chemistry. So I minored in chemistry oh. and their pre-med was a track. It wasn't a major. So you just take certain courses that they, um, that are you know required for the MCAT at that time. Yeah. Uh, and um, cause that was, you know, like 2010, or so so they uh they basically i just took all your standard science classes in retrospect so i actually so this is how much i was really i don't know if if fighting is the right word but fighting to be something else besides a doctor i actually (laughs) wanted to be a literature major i wanted to be a literature major and all my advisors were like that's a bad idea um looking back now i'm like i'm never going to be able to take literature classes i should have done it You know, I should have done it when I was 18 years old. Um, But that's what I wanted to do. I ended up doing biology, though. Where did you go for medical school? So I didn't go too far. Um, About 
45 minutes or 45 minutes to an hour north of Cincinnati, uh, Dayton, Ohio. The medical school is called Wright State University. It's where the uh, the Wright brothers um, grew up and built their plane and everything in, in southern Ohio. Uh, so the university has a name. The medical school has a name. So that's where I went to medical school um, in 2013. I started in 2013. What was your most enjoyable experience in medical school? There were a lot. I think uh, I really enjoyed meeting all these new people. It was like freshman year of college again, but it was on steroids because (laughs) everybody is a super intelligent, Mm -hmm. you know, well-rounded person. Uh, Everyone is kind of it's kind of like the, the pond gets a little bit smaller in college. I feel like I, I really stood out as, you know, one of the pre-med people on campus. And then you get to medical school and you find out like, Oh, I, these are all of the top performers yeah. from all around. So um, it was really cool to just meet a lot of people who had a lot of different experiences, people who were similar in a sense that, you know, we were all students, you know what I mean? Yeah lifelong students so it was a lot of um making a lot of you know making a lot of friends that i would say i'm gonna have for life um i was the social chair for my class so i would plan all the parties and (laughs) so um as a result i went to all the parties and everything like that so it was uh i really enjoyed bringing everyone together i really enjoyed um getting everyone to you know get to know each other better and i think the class really bonded really well it became really tight by the end of uh my graduation time so it was actually kind of tough when i uh i took a year off between my third and fourth years of medical school i took a year to um do an internship i worked at uh uh abc studios in manhattan um i was a medical producer for the dr oz show for one year really Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was tough. I, I, it was hard to leave all my friends and everything, but it was an opportunity I couldn't turn down because I'm really interested in media and stuff like that. I'm really interested in, you know, television, social media, journalism, medical journalism and things. And I thought I'm not going to learn this, you know, any, I, I can't learn this anywhere better than the monster company that is the Dr. Oz show. I mean, he's got his hands in, obviously TV is what he's been known for, but the guy's got his hands in social media, radio, you know, daytime television, not just daytime television, but like, you know, morning news, like the today show and, Mm -hmm. you know, ABC news and all that stuff. He's, he's uh, always doing appearances. He has a magazine. We work with uh, all these other, TV doc, we worked with all these other TV doctors in New York, you know, so it was really cool to um, be around a lot of like minded physicians who they do other things besides medicine. Good learning experience. I learned a lot, a lot of fun. Living in New York in your 20s, that's an experience in and of itself. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It was fun. Sounds fascinating, to be honest. Um, A lot of people say that, and I look back and I think, 
there was one episode we did where the guests were, I don't know if you remember back in 2016. So the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting had just yeah. had happened mm-hmm. like previously. So we had on the trauma team from Orlando. Yeah, so it was a bunch of trauma surgeons, yeah. pediatric surgeons, emergency medicine doctors. We had them on to talk about gun violence. So meeting them, I was fascinated. On top of that, we surprised them and we had the Surgeon General, uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy, come through and, uh, you know, surprise them with an appearance. So I was doubly starstruck because I met all these trauma surgeons who I thought were, you know, super badass. I don't know if you could say that on your podcast. <laughs> it's fine. And then obviously meeting the Surgeon General, um, who, funny enough, now, you know, is our Surgeon General again. He came yeah. back and did this, is, is in his second term of it. Uh, and getting to talk to him was, was really amazing. So, um, it was definitely an awesome year, but uh, it's funny how desensitized I got quickly desensitized to like the glamour of television when you're when you're there and you're you know working these crazy hours and uh, and you know you forget that like oh that's right DJ Khaled is in the studio or something <laughs> like that you know so it was fun I really enjoyed it yeah. Well, yeah, sounds very, very interesting. And I can honestly understand how you would be more awestruck. Where did you do your residency or are you doing it right now? um, I'm in my residency right now. So I ended up sticking around in Dayton for a girl. And now (laughs) she's the mother of my two beautiful daughters. So so we're, we're in Dayton now. We started, so we started med school at the same time. She went the MD PhD route. Mm-hmm. So I, I graduated before she just graduated medical school this year. So she did eight, eight years of medical school. Cause it was, you know, the four years of the MD and then the four years of her research to yeah. get her PhD. So, so she just graduated. I'm in my third year of residency. So PGY three out of seven. <laughs> yeah. It's a long time, but do you elaborate on maybe some like experiences that you've had so far that really impacted you? Yeah, I mean, I, geez, <laughs> so so many because we have such a heavy trauma um, program here. Uh, the gun violence. So I was on call the night that the Dayton shooting happened, which yeah. I don't know if you're familiar because there's there's shootings every day in this mm-hmm. country. This was back. Um, in it would have been 2019 uh the summer of 2019 when um a a man opened fire with a um automatic rifle in the middle of this really busy entertainment area on a a weekend evening you know it's this yeah. really it's this place where it's like the streets basically shut down and it's like all these clubs bars everybody's mm-hmm. out and about and um This man opened fire on several individuals there. So it was, uh, I was sitting there in my, in the call room. I think I was, it was, it was in the middle of the night. So I think I was just kind of, I got all my orders and everything done. And I was just laying there watching TV, falling asleep, trying to get a little bit of rest. Cause I was on like a 24 hour call. And, um, one of my best friends in residency, Casey, uh, he was on call in our surgical ICU. Uh, and I, I think I had dinner with him earlier that night. So he knew I was downstairs. So he bursts into the room, wakes me, you know, wakes me up yeah. 
and he says, hey, Gerardo, active shooter. We're going to the trauma bay now. And I said, geez. Yeah. Are you messing with me? Like, what's going on? I'm like half awake. I was like, are you kidding, Casey? And he's like, not kidding. Let's go. Grab your stuff. And, uh, you know, I walked down there to the... um, to the emergency department, we have five trauma bays uh, right at the entrance of our emergency department. And I remember it was just like very, it was very controlled chaos. Uh, they activated our mass casualty protocol, which is basically to say that if a mass shooter happens, if a giant, you know, bus wreck happens or something where several individuals are going to need acute you know, medical attention. Yeah. Uh, they go into this mode where extra people are called in. We have a protocol for the surgeons and the emergency medicine doctors and the residents on what tasks everyone's supposed to do. And other uh, physicians are on standby if more people come in. And um, so I come downstairs and it was just this controlled chaos. Everybody is uh, you know, almost manning their stations, directing patients one way or another. And it was so surreal. I'll never forget it. People walking in, patients walking in with, you know, gunshot wounds yeah. on their arms, on their legs, like bleeding with tourniquets on their arms, just walking in because they, you know, everyone was just trying to get, everyone was just trying to get people to the hospital. So people are dropping people off in cars and stuff like that. Um, so it was incredibly surreal. My chief resident looked at me and said, Rod, go grab as many tourniquets as you can from the supply closet and bring them over to Trauma Bay 1. I remember running around, grabbing stuff, jumping from Trauma Bay to Trauma Bay, trying to help people, uh, trying to see what everyone needed. Um, And I guess, you know, the stepping back from it, I didn't realize how much it affected me until months maybe not months later, but probably weeks later when I finally, you know, sat down and I was alone with my own thoughts and I realized what had happened. You know, we've be, we've become so numb to it in America because yeah. there's so many shootings that, uh, and you always think, oh, it's never going to happen, you know, mm-hmm. in my town. And it's like, no, it happened in my town and it happened when I was on call and it happened when, you know, I was there to try and help people. And I guess, you know, not, I'm not like a bleeding heart liberal or anything, but it really <laughs> changed, you know, my viewpoint on weapons in mm-hmm. America. And I'll say that much. I don't want to get too political on your show. I don't know <laughs> who your audience is, but I'll say that, you know, being there firsthand is something that I don't, I don't ever want to experience again. Yeah. I don't want any, any of my, you know, fellow physicians to experience ever again. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. And, uh, not just, you know, think of the devastation to the patients, but the mental, um, you know, the mental wear and tear that it has on providers to, I don't know, to see that kind of thing, which is, and, and treat that kind of thing, which is, in my opinion, incredibly preventable. Um, so that was probably, what, anyway, to answer your question, <laughs> uh, that's probably the most impactful thing that ever happened to me in residency. Um, but, uh, I'll, I tell people a close second, I could probably talk about this, the whole, the whole podcast, I'll <laughs> say a close, a close second, just to ch- ch- change gears mm-hmm. is, um, when 
So we also do a lot of surgical oncology at our program. Our program director is a surgical oncologist. We have a lot of really fantastic uh, cancer surgeons in town. So we do a lot of rotations with them and they're phenomenal. Um, and, but funny enough, my, my memory, my favorite memory from their group wasn't from the operating room. It was from a clinic patient. Uh, I went in there with one of our attendings. Who's this, he's like the older, more experienced guy of the group. Um, and I didn't know much about this patient. He said, all right, come on, we got to check this out. We go in there and, uh, it, it's a patient that he had had for several years and it was him telling him like, Hey, we're at the five year mark since your surgery, you've been cancer free. So you don't have to see me anymore. And, uh, the patients and the family like gave him a hug. There were tears yeah. and it was kind of this moment where it's like, you know, it's almost like this, uh, this bye. Hope I never get, I hope I never see you again. Glad I never had to see you again kind of thing because your cancer is gone. Uh, And I had never seen anything like that, that kind of experience. We're always so honed in on learning the technique and the cancer biology and, you know, the the treatments and the therapies and the guidelines for cancer that you forget that, you know, at the end of all of that, if everything goes right, if the patient's lucky and the physician and the care team is lucky and, you could cure someone's cancer. Um, and it's an incredibly humbling moment. Um, so those are probably my two favorite things, um, from the early years of my residency. But again, I only had two clinical years so far Mm -hmm. and then I jumped on board with Cincinnati children's. And now I'm because of COVID working from home, uh, as a, as a research fellow for the pediatric surgery department at Cincinnati children's. Yeah, wow. To be honest, that's all I can say for the first story, especially. It sounds, like you said, surreal. Just imagining it from on my end and probably the listeners as well. I couldn't imagine what you went through and everything. But yeah, seriously. And the second story that you said, yeah, thinking about it, that does sound, in my perspective, the most rewarding aspect of being a physician or anything, just fundamentally helping someone, curing them of anything. Yeah, so thank you for sharing those experiences and everything. Um, So what skills would you say are required for a general surgeon such as yourself? Oh, man. (laughs) I guess I'm trying to think of a specific because Mm -hmm. I feel like every every physician has to have the same some overlapping qualities with your surgery or medicine or psych. You know, you have to be someone who is dedicated to to patient care, and you have to you know you gotta be you gotta understand that you have to read and stuff like that. You have to take tests. You know, you have to that kind of stuff that everyone does. I think for (laughs) surgery specifically, uh, there are. Uh, a few things that I think surgeons like should maybe if they're not good at, I mean, I don't think I'm, you know, an expert or particularly good at anything yet since I'm still (laughs) in training, but um, I think surgeons in general have to at least, uh, you know, enjoy doing or learning um, the, the, meticulous details of surgery itself. That's to say, 
you know, we're very unique in that we're almost exclusively procedural specialty. So if, if you, if you can't, you know, focus and work with your hands for several hours at a time, you know, that's going to be a problem because that's something that we do regularly. Um, and like I said, I don't think I'm good at it, but I do love doing it. I love yeah. doing it. I love learning it. I love watching and learning from my attendings, you know, the little things like, hey, Rod, the way you tie your knot down, you should move your hands like this. Or the way you hold your instrument, you should hold your hand this way and turn it this way. And, you know, you're standing in the wrong position. You have to get a better angle to this. And, you know, there's there's a certain technique aspect to it that can be really elegant at times. And I think that a good surgeon, um, you know, if, if they're not anything, they should at least be able to, uh, you know, they should at least have appreciation and ability to, to provide the patient with that aspect of care. Um, because that's where we're different, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the other thing that surgeons need to have is, uh, not as tangible it's this this dedication to almost to the point of stubbornness to to um to take care of the patient and what i mean by that is that i think that you know surgical specialties overall um you know are very time intensive General surgery in particular, I think, is a little bit more time intensive than other surgical subspecialties and things like that. Um, because, you know, as a general surgeon, it's this, this mindset of, um, you know, in the hospital, an attending told me this once, in the hospital, if you're the general surgeon, the buck stops here. You know what I mean? Like if a patient comes in, and they need X, Y, Z procedure done that cardiology is going to do, GI is going to do, pulmonary critical care is going to do. That's fine and dandy. But if something goes wrong and the patient needs to have an operation, none of that matters. And everyone's looking to you because you're the last person that is standing between this patient and a worsening of their condition or death or yeah. something like that because no one else can – get into their abdomen and fix something. No one else in the hospital can get into their Mm -hmm. abdomen or their chest or wherever the problem is, get, you know, cut them open and fix, physically fix whatever is happening other than you. Um, So it's, uh, it's kind of like, not like you're, you know, the dumping ground necessarily, but it's, it's like all these other specialties that are fantastic. And I love working with, and I, I think are I make, I have a lot of friends in different specialties, but when something goes wrong, the, there's a limit to what all of them can do. And at that point it falls to the surgeon and, um, there's a certain like mental, I don't know, I don't want to say like a mental fortitude or something, but there's something very, uh, um, I don't know. This is why I say like a, 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 a really significant dedication, um, you know, almost to the point of like an arrogance because you have to be the one to say like, yeah, this is, you know, this is the last 
straw. This is the last thing that yeah. is going to happen to this patient is I'm going to help save them. Um, so now does that make them, do those two things alone make someone a good surgeon? No, I think that surgeons need those things to get through training and to get through, um, you know, taking care of patients, but does that make someone a good surgeon? I would argue no. I think the thing that someone needs to be a good surgeon is the same thing that someone needs to be a good, uh, you know, mailman or to be a good uh, contractor or something is just um, being a good person is, in my opinion, um, you know, the, the surgery is scary to a lot of people, you know, for some people, they might only have one surgery their whole life if they have one. So it's um, a really vulnerable moment for a lot of patients. It's not like just going to your family medicine doctor, no offense to family medicine doctors. <laughs> it's not like just going to an outpatient clinic and getting your blood pressure checked. It's a very, you know, it's this very vulnerable, invasive moment for a patient. And there's a certain level of trust that is needed to care for them. Um, and I don't think that, and I guess my thought is, is probably the best, the most noble way to get that trust with a patient is to just be inherently a good person. Um, which unfortunately a lot of the surgical stereotype <laughs> is the opposite, but, yeah. uh, but that's my thought. And I think that my generation of surgeons would agree with me that, you know, think they would probably rather take the good person over the you know the guy who's got 500 publications who invented a, a procedure and da, 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 you know um so but there's always a place in surgery for both of those kinds of minds it's just my opinion that you know that that's what makes a good a good surgeon is just being a good person yeah makes sense <laughs> Okay. Um, could you maybe go into some misconceptions that people might have about general sur surgery or a surgeon? Sure. Yeah. I guess the misconceptions that people see on TV are probably the <laughs> easiest to tear down. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like Grey's Anatomy, you know, not, I'm not in a class of models. You know, <laughs> our, atten our attendings aren't, you know, McDreamy and stuff like that. Um, the, I guess the stereotypes on TV that, uh, you know, surgeons are jerks and they're, you know, they're grumpy because they're like, I, like I said, you know, they're working crazy hours or yeah. something like that. Now there is some truth. Obviously there's some, there's some truth that bore these stereotypes, but I was pleasantly surprised when I started my surgery rotation that, um, you know, there are just as many surgeons who are the opposite, who are incredibly kind people who are really dedicated to teaching residents. And um, so I, I think that surgery has a reputation that it's this really, you know, these really intimidating people and, and stuff like that when um, my experience at 
not only at Wright State, which is a little bit more of a community program, but then also now that I'm doing research at Cincinnati Children's at this, you know, high level academic uh, institution, um, there are so many surgeons out there who uh, just want to do right by the patients, just want to do right by their trainees. um, And, you know, they're not out here yelling at people or making them, you know, uh, embarrassing them or making them do do stuff. And yeah. so I guess if for, for pre-med or medical students out there who are like, think that that's what surgery is, I can tell you that like, sure, there are probably some sur- there are surgeons out there who are like that. But um, I think those surgeons get a lot more attention than the ones who, than the ones who are nice and the ones who are, you know, out here doing, um, doing great, great work for their, for their trainees and for their patients and things like that. Um, but a lot of the stereotypes are true. I mean, it's, it's stupid hours, average of 80 hours a week. Wow. You know, uh, it's, it's a lot of, you know, sometimes you're standing in the operating room for longer than you want and you're tired and you're hungry. Um, you know, those things happen, but I think that now in 2021, you know, it's, it's not cool to be like mean to other residents. You know what I mean? So saying like, Hey, uh, this case has been going on for three hours. I really have to go to the bathroom. You know, it'd be really weird. I think now in 2021, it'd be really weird for an attending to say like, Oh, you know, that means you're weak or something like that. It's like, no, I'm just going to go pee and then I might come back. You know what I mean? Or it's like, Oh, I'm, I, I need to eat something. Like I don't feel well. It's like, yeah, please go eat something. Cause I don't want you to faint in the operating room. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so some of the stereotypes are true. Some of them I think are changing. Um, and then I think the last stereotype I would say is that I was, I was really surprised that, um, even though a lot of surgery is still these crazy hours and everything, there are a lot of models that are moving towards like a shift work type of thing. And I'll give you an example of that is trauma surgery. A lot of trauma surgeons are now almost shift work. It's a lot, it's the long shifts, but you know, uh, one of my mentors who's a trauma surgeon here in Dayton, you know, he, they, he does their required call, which, I can't remember how it's uh, something like he broke it down for me that basically like half of the year or half of the month he's on call. And the rest of the time he's doing either his research stuff or he's doing, you know, clinic or going on vacation or, you know, spending time with his family and things like that. Don't quote me on that number, but it was something that was very surprising. He's not working, you know, yeah. You know, 20, 25 or whatever, 30 days a month or something like that. So there are models that are moving towards that kind of shift work, I think. Um, and I think that my generation of surgeons is more lifestyle um, focused than previous generations. Um, so I think there's some change that is still, you know, to be done. Um and stereotypes that are going to change. That's in very time. interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting to hear those stereotypes and everything and how you basically debunked 
a bunch that maybe our, our listeners or even myself had and everything. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, how about, how would you see general surgery changing? Like besides, like you said, lifestyle, maybe techniques, technology advancements or anything in the next sure. 10 or so years. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, kind of what I said previously, I mm-hmm. think the main thing is kind of like this, this new generation yeah. of surgeons that, that want to have families and they want to travel after COVID. I mean, they want to travel and they want to, you know, they want to do other things besides surgery. And that's not necessarily just research. It's stuff like media or, um, you know, uh, in, in, in inventing patenting devices or starting companies. Like I think that the, the, what is it? The millennial generation. I'm a, I'm a millennial, I guess. The millennial generation of surgeons, I think, is going to be more focused on other things besides surgery. I think that's for the that's. I think that's for the better. Obviously, some people think it's for the worst. If you're going to be a surgeon, then you should just be eat, sleep, and breathe surgery twenty four seven. But you know, obviously, with burnout rates, divorce rates, everything the way they are, I don't know if that's a s- sustainable model. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's the one thing is the culture of surgery, I think is, is due for a, um, glow up. (laughs) Then I think like you're saying techniques. So there is definitely a big push towards less and less invasive procedures. You know, we don't have to, um, cut someone open from, you know, chin to, uh, groin every, every time anymore. We can do a lot of minimally invasive stuff. Laparoscopic surgery is is pretty much like the standard of care for a lot of procedures now. Robotics obviously is taking off. It's yeah. to the point now that I remember when I was interviewing for programs in 2017, pretty much every program that I interviewed at, they offer a, uh, you finish your residency with a certificate in robotic surgery. So you can go on and practice robotic surgery immediately after you graduate there. It's, it's very, very popular. And then on top of that, um, when we say minimally invasive, yes, there's the idea of small incisions, you know, laparoscopic or robotic surgery for more and more different um, disease processes, but then also the idea of what we call natural orifice procedures. So, you know, trying to use endoscopy in creative ways. Uh, you know, one of my, um, my, actually my PI now at Cincinnati Children's, he does, uh, per oral pyloromyotomies. So the standard of care right now, I think, is laparoscopic pyloromyotomy for patient for pediatric patients who have hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, meaning that uh, valve that goes from the stomach to the duodenum that normally, you know, lets things in and out. In some babies, for some reason, that gets really, really big and um, too strong, and then they can't uh, eat. They end up throwing everything up. So the standard of care right now, I would argue, is a laparoscopic um, way that you kind of cut that that muscle. Uh, my PI does this from the inside. So he does an EGD that goes down into the stomach. You go to the that muscle and you cut it from the inside instead of from the outside. And then the kid has zero incisions on their abdomen. They don't go through a, like a surgery as we think of it. It's more of like a 
I don't know, like a procedure. And then you got to think of the, um, the other natural orifice, obviously the anus. So the things that we can do with a colonoscope these days are incredible, you know, um, diagnostic wise and otherwise. So I think this push towards minimally invasive and then coming up with the definition of what minimally invasive is, is, is really morphing, um, not just in those surgeries, but then vascular surgery too, you know, vascular surgery was, uh, you know, predominantly and in some places it probably still is, you know, open procedures, you know, bloody messes go in and you're fixing stuff with these big incisions in people's abdomens, things like that. Uh, these days we can do a lot of things, what we call endovascularly. You go in through an artery with a wire and using a uh, real time x-ray, you could take that wire somewhere and do some intervention, either getting out clots or um, putting in stents and things like that. So, you know, gone are the days where, um, well, not gone. It still happens sometimes where you have to, you know, do open procedures and vascular surgery happens. But uh, more and more procedures are going the minimally invasive route, endovascular route. Um, so I'm curious to see, you know, what this field is going to look like 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. You know, it's gonna, there's going to be, uh, you know, new surgeons coming out teaching me procedures, you know, 15, 20 years from now. Um, so yeah, so minimally invasive procedures. I don't know what those are going to look like down the road, but I'm excited to see. It sounds fascinating, to be honest. Everything you said, yeah. I mean, obviously, since you're a surgeon, you're excited, but I'm sure all of our listeners and everything, myself included, we're also excited to see how everything's going to change with technology advancements, everything, everything. Okay, well, since I don't want to take more of your time, we've reached the last question, which would be, what advice would you personally give to someone trying to become a general surgeon, such as, like yourself? Advice for someone who wants to be a general surgeon like myself? Yes, sir. Um, I'm going to say, <laughs> and this kind of goes on with kind of what I was saying previously about lifestyle stuff is, you know, you know everyone's going to tell you, that you have to read, which is true. Everyone's going to tell you you have to practice your knot tying, and that's true. But you also have to make sure that you, uh, you know, you eat something. You got to make sure that you sleep. You got to make sure that you hang out with your friends when you can, or hang out with your family when you can. And uh, maybe I'm telling this to myself because I think I'm a work. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of a workaholic. But um, you know, surgery is is hard no matter where you go. So you just got to like. You know, you got to live your life. Have a family during residency if you want. It's not impossible. People figure it out. And if it is that important to you, then it's worth it. So, um, and I'm confident that any uh, program, any residency program in the United States will teach you the, you know, the meat and potatoes of general surgery. Um, it's just whether or not you come away with, you know, a life experience that, you know, also helps you grow as a person um, because sometimes those help you grow as a surgeon too. So, boom, there's my advice. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure all of our listeners and everything will take it to heart and everything because that is very good advice, to be honest, to take into consideration everything because it is important to have a family, to be normal, basically, is what I'm yeah. trying to say. Yeah, I get exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, being normal, it's easier said than done. When I, when I tell people uh, when they're um, asking, like, what do you look for in a 
what do you what do you like in a new resident or an intern i'm like just like a normal person because i gotta hang out with this person for like 14 hours every day like just be a normal dude or woman or whatever you are like just i i I can't stand when i have to like i don't know you're on call you're in this cramped resident room with this person with these residents all day um and i just want someone that i can enjoy working with really and it just comes down to that maybe they're not the smartest person in the room maybe they're not you know the most talented person in the room but that's what we're in training for is you're like learning all that stuff you know what i mean so that's my thought um yeah (laughs) well thank you thank you very much for taking the time and everything during this pandemic especially i'm sure you're very very busy like you said but thank you so much we appreciate it and everything thank you thank you very much it was very interesting to be honest very very interesting and i'm sure our listeners will think so as well yeah i hope so man um so thanks for having me sure thing my pleasure thank you once again thank you thank you thank you yeah have a good night you too goodbye